Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. It's really not too often that you meet someone who is an Ayurvedic specialist and practitioner who also does fertility. Today's guest is deeply passionate about the healing powers of food and the balance of mind, body, and spirit for optimal health. Welcome, Namisha Gandhi. Thank you for being here today. There's those aspects of Ayurveda and fertility. We know now your menstrual cycle is like your fifth vital sign, meaning that just like your pulse and your temperature convey a lot about your own health, your menstrual cycle can convey a lot about your health. It's not just related to fertility. So you want to have a healthy period regardless if you want to have children or not. Your menstrual cycle can tell you about your brain health, about your heart health, if you're anemic or not. Oh, there's just so many other signs that your menstrual mm-hmm. cycle can tell you. And so Ayurveda really gleamed on that. And a lot of taking care of women's health, it's also about taking care of the menstrual health. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journey Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about stress and infertility. I get asked a lot of questions about, do you think that my infertility is due to my stress? Is my stress impacting my ability to conceive? This is a really difficult question and quite complex because it's difficult to understand how much of an impact an individual's stress level may have on their fertility. And what we do know is that there's lots of research demonstrating that there are significantly more cases of anxiety and depression amongst women dealing with infertility. But is it the infertility that caused the anxiety and depression? We know that infertility can impact a couple's relationships, sex life, daily interactions, and relationships with friends and family. And often couples may avoid certain social situations as a result, feeling more isolated and therefore more stressed. Infertility can also impact their place of work, if they need to take off significant time for treatment, And lastly, infertility can also cause a tremendous amount of financial stress due to the fact that treatments are often not covered by insurance, and that leaves couples to bear the burden of the costs. I believe that all couples will encounter some amount of stress when dealing with infertility, whether or not they notice it. And I often tell people it's how you cope and respond to the stress that's one of the most important factors in how stress impacts our body. And usually I ask patients, what do they do to cope with their stress? Many patients may respond by watching a movie, taking a walk, listening to music, taking a nap, shopping, snacking. There are many different ways that we cope with stress. Well, all these things can be pleasurable in the moment for the patient, 
they may not be able to elicit a true relaxation response. We do know that studies have shown one of the main reasons that infertility patients discontinue their treatment is due to stress. So it would be ideal if we could find ways to support patients during the process of infertility treatments and even before treatments to help with the stress that's encountered. And I think using coping techniques that can help to reduce the anxiety and the overwhelm can really help during those difficult times. Some of the things that I recommend can be meditation, breathing exercises, using acupuncture, the practice of mindfulness, journaling, yoga, guided imagery. There's lots of different options that can help, as well as working with a mental health professional. I think that's super important and often not really recommended until a patient or a couple is in a significant amount of distress. All of these practices and helping to reduce stress can help us along the way. I think in particular in the past two years, people in general have endured a significant amount of stress and for many a significant amount of trauma, not only with their infertility, but with all the worldly events that we've gone through that have impacted our jobs, that have impacted our families, that have made us more isolated from family and friends. It's really important to acknowledge that we've all been through a very difficult two years and it's important to give yourself grace. Sometimes me sitting here telling you to meditate or telling you to do yoga or use acupuncture just isn't something you want to do. And so I've realized over the past two years, while all these things sound wonderful, because this is a time that none of us have ever navigated before. Sometimes you just need to do what you need to do to cope. But I'm going to go over a few of the things that you might be able to do to help you at home that are low to no cost that can help support you during the stressful times. And again, all in all, I think self-love and patience and giving yourself grace is the most important thing. Try not to compare yourself to others. I think, unfortunately, social media has become a place that's made it so easy for us to compare ourselves to what's going on with other women or other couples, and that can just make it feel even more heavy. So I'm just going to review a few things today that you might find helpful. Now, meditation is kind of becoming more in vogue to talk about. It's something that you hear a lot about, but many people when I speak about it, feel like that's not for me. I can't meditate. I'm somebody who constantly has thoughts running in my head. I'm constantly running a list in my head of all the things I need to do, all the places I need to go. It's just go, go, go all the time. And I think that has become the nature of our lives these days, especially with the phones and the computers. It's like we can be working where we are, no matter where we are, and there's no break. And so I think taking 5, 10, 20 minutes out of your day where there's no phone, there's no laptop, there's no iPad, and just sitting in a spot with silence. And I think sometimes that at first can feel really overwhelming. It seems like it should be something easy, but it's difficult. So many of us are used to when there's silence, whether it be, you know, in our car or when we're waiting in a line somewhere or we're waiting for food, or we're sitting in a place eating alone, what do we do? We pull out our phones. Just taking some time to sit with yourself, 
listen to your thoughts and breathing. And meditation really can focus on breath, a sound or a mantra that you repeat to yourself. And mantras are words that help us center ourselves. So you may have a personal mantra for the day that you can repeat during the time that you're in meditation. And know that it's okay if your mind wanders during meditation. That's totally normal. There's no such thing as I have a blank mind when I'm meditating and I just sit there and I know what to do. Meditation is something that takes lots of practice and it's totally normal. Just allowing your mind to drift away and then bringing your focus back to your breath. Again, meditation is something that becomes easier with practice just as learning any new skill. You didn't just learn how to ride a bike the first time you got on a bike. It's something that takes practice with repetition. It becomes more natural and less difficult to do. Nowadays, there's many apps and videos and auto recordings that can help with meditation. I have a lot of that on my website. You can go to fertilityjourneys.org to look at that. Also, if you're interested in acupuncture, I do have an episode with Dr. Jessica Chen where I talk about acupuncture and how that can support fertility. I do think that's another way to help support stress during infertility. It's a way to kind of get away and relax and mindfulness. Mindfulness is something that I think it's really, really beneficial because it can be done anywhere. You might find yourself dwelling on the past or thinking about the future, but often we're not in the present moment. Have you ever been there and you just thought, wow, where did the day go? It's not uncommon that we forget to pay attention to the little things during our day. And in fact, that's really how most of us live. And mindfulness is really just the paying attention on purpose to the present moment without any judgment. Unfortunately, going through fertility treatments can often overshadow the good things that may happen in your life. And even small things can bring you joy. Mindfulness can be practiced with even the smallest tasks like washing dishes, eating, or taking a shower. And I think the practice of mindfulness can be really helpful when on the fertility journey. And research has found that it helps women to reduce psychological distress during infertility treatments. I'm someone that really enjoys guided imagery. I think guided imagery is something that can be really helpful if you find meditation difficult because this allows you to use a lot of your senses and to really engage and listen to the person that's guiding you. And you can find a lot of these on Apple Music. There's one specifically for fertility often. There might be one specifically for sleep. And usually you're selecting a location that feels relaxing or comforting. You might imagine yourself on the beach and you're really using all your senses to enhance the imagery. And just imagining yourself in a calm, relaxing environment can be helpful in eliciting the relaxation response. One of the other things that I really recommend is spending time in nature. Spending time in nature has been shown to have wonderful health benefits. Some of the benefits that have been seen in research are decreased stress, enhancing our immune system, helping to reduce rates of depression, and just overall wellness. So many of us spend so much time indoors. In fact, research has shown we spend less than 7% of our day outdoors. So just making an effort to spend five to 10 minutes outside even if it's just sitting outside to read a book, even if it's walking your dog around the block, just a way to get outside and enjoy your surroundings. When you're outside on your walk, it can be a great time to practice mindfulness. You might be focusing on any plants that you're seeing, focusing on sounds or sights that you're seeing. I think that that's a great opportunity. 
And last, as you may have heard on my show so many times, please, if you're on the fertility journey, you're encountering a great amount of stress. And especially during these past few years, it has become extremely heavy for everyone. And I really feel for those who are on the fertility journey because now they're enduring so many things, not only the stress of infertility, but the stress of what's going on in the world these days. And so I really recommend working with a mental health professional. I can't stress that enough, whether you're just starting, whether you've been on the journey for a while, I think it's so important to work with someone who can support you or you and your partner along the way. Even when it feels like you can do it alone, I think it's really helpful to work with someone who can support you. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Today's guest is deeply passionate about the healing powers of food and the balance of mind, body, and spirit for optimal health. Welcome, Namisha Gandhi. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Ashala. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Yeah, I love connecting with practitioners in all areas of health that are passionate about the integrative approach because I think, especially when it comes to fertility, it's important to have a team of practitioners that can help, not just your physician. Maybe you have an acupuncturist or nutritionist. So I really like connecting with others that can help me to give other resources to patients. And we met on Clubhouse after being in many of your rooms. You have one of the most popular women's health club on Clubhouse. So I encourage anybody who's on Clubhouse to check out the Moon Cycle Club. It's amazing. She does so many great rooms, so many great guests. I would really recommend checking that out. So that's really how I met Namisha. And I found that she was so knowledgeable. And it's really not too often that you meet someone who is an Ayurvedic specialist and practitioner who also does fertility. So I was very interested to bring you on and speak a little bit more about your experience. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired your interest in the area of Ayurveda and functional medicine? Yes. So I was doing my undergraduate in pre-med psychobiology or just choosing that major, the combination of psychology and biology, I was really interested in uh, the mind-body connection to health and seeing how all of that works together. But along the way, I actually decided that I didn't want to continue on to medical school and I wanted to be more into preventative health. And so that really was like my first step into working in more like alternative or holistic medicine. And then I went off to study Ayurvedic medicine. And eventually I went to nutrition school and did a few other trainings in between. But it was when I was in nutrition school, I was like, well, I'll just work with children because I wanted to Mm -hmm. become a pediatrician. So it made sense if I become a pediatric nutritionist. But as I was learning about some of the health diseases and health conditions that today's children are facing, and this is going back to Ayurveda, I realized that a lot of stuff happens even before conception that sets up a child's health. And so I was like, you know, I really want to work in fertility, in the hormonal stages, 
and to help couples become really healthy before they even decide to have children to ensure that the children have just better health genetically and just being born and not everything is controlled. You can do all the right things and still have sick children or have children with different learning abilities and all of that. So it's not to say that it's something that the couple did or not did, but it's just also taking those extra steps to become super healthy before you have children. Yeah, I agree with that completely because I think that there's so much that comes into play with our health preconception and obviously during pregnancy. So I think it's really important to prepare and plan if you can. A lot of people don't look at planning for pregnancy, unfortunately. And so I think it's really important to look, like you said, look at your nutrition And again, not to say that those things are going to prevent any illnesses or diseases in children, but I think it's something that can help us to try to optimize health. And then I just want to repeat with the Ayurveda. Ayurveda really puts a huge emphasis on the menstrual cycle. So that was just another piece of it that helped me really hone in and say, I want to work in fertility. What's interesting is actually I am a psychobiology major from UCLA, so maybe that's why we connected. (laughs) (laughs) Now, some of our listeners may not know much about Ayurveda. Some might, but there's a lot of people who have not heard of Ayurveda. Can you give us a little bit of background about it? Yeah, so Ayurveda is a medical system that's over 5,000 years old, and it originates from India. And Ayurveda translates into the science of life, and it is a whole mind-body medicine medical system. They believe in bio-individuality, so each person is unique, has a unique blueprint, and thus lifestyle and medications and all of that should be really individualized for the person. And Ayurveda believes in different personality types and how even personality and characteristics affect your health and your outlook in life. And so that's so wonderful about Ayurveda because it really is not a one-size-fits-all. And Ayurveda also really puts a great emphasis on nutrition, on that lifestyle, on sleep. But then it also has all of the medical branches, as you would expect, like EMT, pediatrician, gynecology, all of that as well. So it is very extensive. Something that's been around for 5,000 years, there has to be a lot of wisdom. I know that we've lost a lot of the connections with traditional medicine, especially when it comes to conventional medicine. We don't even really look at the mind-body connection and things like that. So I think it's really good to draw from other things like Ayurveda. Can you talk about the personalization a little bit more and how you go about doing that when you meet with a patient? There are three major types of categories when you're thinking about a person. They're called constitutions or doshas. And so you have a vata dosha, a pitta dosha, and a kapha. So just like in traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda bases everything on elements. And so the five elements are ether, air, fire, water, and earth. And everything in the universe is made out of some a combination of these elements. And so people are seen also as a combination of these elements. So the vata is ether and air, pitta is fire and water, and kapha is earth and water. 
or water and earth. And so everyone has a little combination of this and it kind of, it's like almost like your genetic type. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm very high in the vata and pitta and very little kapha. So I don't have a lot of earth and water elements in me. So what does that tell me about my own personality? Or is that one, I'm more of an anxious type because I have a lot of air in me. I have a lot oh. of ether in me. So that helps me. That's like I'm ungrounded a lot. <laughs> I easily become okay. ungrounded <laughs> to keep me healthy and balanced. I need to come down to earth a little bit more, get in touch with okay. the earth element. And how do I do that? It could be meditation and staying closer to the ground, spending more time in nature or foods like more root vegetables and soups and stews are better for my body type mm -hmm. instead of like salads, which are very dry and airy. And right. so it's about balancing out. It's not like what you're lacking but what you have more of and less of and how can you keep those in balance? Because like increases like. So like when a person is angry, their fire is up. If you increase their fire by getting angry at that mm -hmm. angry person, there's just going to be an explosion. But when you meet that anger with a little bit more earth or a little bit more air, the opposite energy that other fire energy will start to calm down, dowsing a little bit mm -hmm. with water. And so that is how Ayurveda sees everything in the system. I I'm super simplifying it also. When Ayurvedic doctors or practitioners see a patient or new client, they're trying to figure out their personality, but from also from birth, because what oh. you're born with, your genetics, they don't really change over time. You just grow into them more. And imbalances, health issues can push out your dosha, the one that you're born with, to make it seem like you're something else. But oh. an Ayurvedic doctor or practitioner would be able to really determine what you were from birth by taking your pulse, checking out your tongue, and then asking very pointed questions about what did you look like when you were a child and things like that. You can do a questionnaire and find mm -hmm. out like just by like hair type, dry, brittle hair versus lush, curly hair, okay. acne, things about your skin, again, personality. Even the way your bowel movements are can tell you a lot about your doshas as well. Can you have a combination of different doshas? Yes, it's really rare to find a 100% vata dosha. Everyone's a combination of the three there are very rare types that are like an equal balance of all three. And those people are really healthy and hard to really unbalance them because they're equal parts of each. But usually you have one or two dominant doshas and then like a lesser dosha. Does it change? You were talking about being very balanced. If someone is unhealthy, they can kind of go towards one of the doshas more in their combination? Yes. Definitely. So someone who, let's say, was born like very petite and had more of the vata dosha, but, you know, something happened along their life and all of a sudden they have hypothyroidism and they have diabetes, they've gained a lot of weight, and now it looks like they're kapha because kaphas in build they're more sturdy they just have more weight on them mm -hmm. and vatas are usually very petite and thin but you know 
because of whatever lifestyle stress that has brought that person is all of a sudden heavier, has obesity, hypothyroidism. And so an untrained person can look like, oh, this person is a kapha person. But in reality, they were always vata, but health pushed them into the kapha state. I got it. So that's why you have to really look at childhood and Mm -hmm. see where you kind of started and try to go more towards that to get you back into your balance. Yes, exactly. And that's why we need to celebrate different body shapes and body sizes because a person who may look heavier and look bigger, but that person was born that way and they're just happy that way. There's nothing wrong with them medically, you know, they're not battling any kind of diseases or anything. They're not at risk for anything, but they're just heavier and they're completely healthy and they don't need to change for health. And Ayurveda really celebrates individuality, but also different body sizes and shapes. Yeah, I think that's really important because unfortunately we have a standard of what's considered normal. Even when it comes to conventional medicine, we use things like BMI, which doesn't fit every person. Mm -hmm. So you could be a quite healthy person and maybe not fit the guidelines for what your weight is or where you put the weight on is different. It doesn't automatically mean that you're unhealthy. So I think that's wonderful. Why Ayurveda for fertility? You mentioned that Ayurveda really focuses a lot on menstrual cycle. Tell us a little bit more about how Ayurveda can support fertility. Ayurveda puts a great emphasis on the menstrual cycle. And we know that we need to have healthy periods to have a healthy fertility. And because Ayurveda really sees us the menstrual cycle as the root of all creation. And so just Ayurvedically, and I'm not talking about the Indian culture, I'm just talking about the medicine. Every time the doctor sees you, they'll ask you about your menstrual cycle and the health of it. And Ayurvedically, when um, you're ready to have a child, it's a process of taking care of the female health, the men's health, and also taking into account the baby that will be born. So there's a little bit of a spiritual aspect to it too. Mm-hmm. Infertility aspects of Ayurveda, rituals that you do to ensure mm-hmm. easy conception, healthy conception. So it's not just about, oh, take your prenatals and you'll be good, but they're just right. their lifestyle things. It's like a guideline, not like you should do this and not do this, but really putting care on you know, easing up responsibilities for the woman and really putting emphasis on just growing the baby. And so there's those aspects of Ayurveda and fertility. We know now your menstrual cycle is like your fifth vital sign, meaning that just like when the doctor Mm -hmm. takes your pulse and your temperature and your pulse and your temperature convey a lot about your own health, your menstrual cycle can convey a lot about your health. It's not just related to fertility. So you want to have a healthy period regardless if you want to have children or not because your menstrual cycle can tell you about your brain health. It can tell you about your heart health. It can tell you if you're anemic or not. You know, there's just so many other signs that your menstrual Mm -hmm. cycle can tell you. And so Ayurveda really gleaned on that. And a lot of taking care of women's health, it's also about taking care of the menstrual health. You're right. I think here and a general doctor may only ask you questions about when was your last period and was it heavy or not heavy if you're you know OBGYN or 
fertility practitioner, you're going to be asking more detailed questions. But if you're working with a general doctor, they're just going to ask you when your last period was. And so there's so much more to dig into that to see what's really going on with your menstrual cycle. And as you said, it can really speak to a lot of what's going on with your general health. Is there a particular person that would benefit more from Ayurveda or is it something really that anybody can benefit from? Ayurveda, it's the science of life and it really is for everybody. There's definitely the medical side of it, but there's a huge lifestyle piece to it. What Ayurveda recognizes that once you understand your own dosha, you live your life according to those codes of your dosha. So everyone benefits from it. Another great example is exercise. So Mm -hmm. someone who is a vata, lots of wind element and easily gets anxious, going on long runs is probably going to aggravate them and doing sprints and things. That's not a good exercise for them because it's just going to imbalance them. Better exercise is more grounding yeah. things. So like strength training, things on the mat because it's closer to the ground and it's more stabilizing for the muscles. So even understanding those things can help you really flow with your body and create mm-hmm. alignment in your whole life. Yeah, I think we sometimes think, well, I should do this exercise because my friend said it's great and I can lose weight and all that. But there are some types of exercise that may not be good for you, as you said. Some people may not be built to be runners or may not be built to be doing CrossFit or whatever the case may be. So you really have to get in touch with what works for you. It's really interesting to hear that. Thank you. What about nutrition? You did mention earlier that someone may do better with stews or salads or things like that. Can you speak a little bit more about food as medicine and Ayurveda? Food is a major component of Ayurveda. And the reason being is that it nourishes us. It makes up our health, our building blocks. There are lots of foods that are good for each dosha type and for each health. But what we have to remember is that there's some certain principles of foods that will never change regardless of what dosha you are. And you need to follow those, everyone. And that's like trying to eat as locally and seasonally as possible. Because food is fresher, it's grown in your environment. Like it really doesn't make sense to have tropical fruits in Alaska. It's been shipped or really grown in a very unsustainable way. So keeping that in mind. Two, eating as much real food as possible. Avoiding the processed things, the manufactured things. The foods are not real food. Caffeine, sugar, and alcohol, those things have to be minimized as much as possible because they really can disrupt your health. And with caffeine, the kapha types can actually handle caffeine a little bit better because they they actually need more stimulation versus a vata type who's already like pretty much in the air. If they had more caffeine, they'd just be really jittery. And so it's really interesting when people say, oh, I just can't handle any caffeine. And the next person was like, I love caffeine. And then some people were like, I had two sips of coffee and I couldn't sleep all night. That is really your genetic type, your dosha. That's really calling to it. And each food also has an element again. So like a tomato, a tomato has a lot of water element to it, but it also Mm -hmm. has that red color, a little like a fire. It's acidic. 
So someone who is a pitta, who already has a lot of fire and water in them, eating too many tomatoes and nightshades in general can be very aggravating, maybe cause like skin issues or even irritability. And someone who's kapha, who already has a lot of water and earth element, and then if they're diet with a lot of sweet potatoes or a lot of potatoes are already very earthy. Mm -hmm. That's just going to increase that element in them. And then it can be translated as like insulin resistance or something like that. It's not like to be stressful, like you're trying to learn what every food element is and everything, mm -hmm. you know, but when you look at your plate, I just say, what elements are in your plate and what's the majority? If your plate right. is a lot of just earth element and you already have a lot of earth energy in you, probably you want to have more the leafy greens and more smaller fruits and veggies on your plate and less of the heavier dense foods. And then if you are, happen to be a vata and your plate is like all like leafy greens and salads, maybe adding more like even meats and heavier elements onto the plate uh, to help you balance out a little bit. And your digestion will improve too. Wow. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, honestly. I really hadn't thought about it too much when it comes to eating sweet potatoes or potatoes is more earthy. Tomatoes was really surprising to me that that's considered like fire, but it makes sense. So that's very interesting. And that's something you work on with your clients and your patients. You look at their diet and also how that looks at their gut health. I imagine that is a huge component of what you work on too. Yes. Yeah, so I'm also studied functional medicine. And even though I feel like Ayurveda is the original medical system that said mm -hmm. all disease and health starts in the gut and Ayurveda really looks at your Agni, which is your digestive fire. So you can look at that as your microbiome or your digestive enzymes also in determining what's going on with your health. And then functional medicine is also all about gut health related to the rest of your health. And so it's really important to look at how you're digesting, you're assimilating, absorbing all of the nutrients, and then eliminating to determine what's going on in your health as well. What kind of things do you look for when you meet with a patient to see how their gut health is going? Like, What kind of things do you ask them and what do you look for to determine that? Myself and many practitioners like my thought, we have a really thick intake farm. Yeah, I imagine. And I'm asking, yeah, and I'm <laughs> asking all sorts of questions that seem unrelated, like what was your childhood like? Were you happy? Were you, you know, anxious? Things like that to, I probably have six different questions on just your bowel movements and the shape, mm -hmm. the color, odor, consistency, how often, because your bowel movements, it's data. <laughs> It's goldmine. Yep. It tells you so much about your health. And everyone has an established pattern almost about their bowels. And there is a range of healthy for your bowel movements. That helps me determine a lot, but also what your metabolism is like, what your hunger is like, what foods are you typically craving, because all those are indications as well. And then when I see a client, I do help create a meal plan very specific to their nutritional requirements, but also their health goals and what their dosha is. Again, I don't want to make it so hard for people to eat. And I want them to be right. able to go to the farmer's market and say, oh, they saw this rutabaga and they just had to bring it home. They're not thinking about their dosha. Like, oh, you know, I don't want right. people to be turned off from <laughs> trying new foods. 
but you know, you can also play with spices and cooking methods that can make it easier to digest too. Like you said, nutrition is such an important part. I think so often we want to try to do supplements or things like that. What are your thoughts on use of things like probiotics or supplements to help? Supplements are just that. They're supplementing your diet. So you can't out-supplement a wrong diet or a bad diet, a poor diet. But supplements, I also believe, are very much needed in today's modern world where our soil, our food is just not as fresh and it's not as nutrient-dense as it used to be. So our body still requires all the things to survive so and thrive. A few that I, I do recommend for everyone almost is vitamin D. Get your levels checked, mm-hmm. but vitamin D3 coupled with K2, I think that's really important. For a lot of people with like menstrual health issues, I find that magnesium biglycinate is just a really great Mm -hmm. supplement, especially with period pain and cramps and stagnation. And then there's some Ayurvedic herbs, popular ones right now, like they're in every product. It's like ashwagandha. And I don't Mm -hmm. recommend ashwagandha for everyone. As an Ayurvedic practitioner, it's not a one-size-fits-all It's the method you take it, how long you take it. You shouldn't be baking with all of these things. Oftentimes people put it in smoothies and all of those, Mm -hmm. it's not the intended use for. And so, you know, work with somebody, but there are really great herbs for menstrual health, fertility health, and very specific to what you need. And it can be a really great addition. Also, it's not all or nothing. In our modern day world, we need as much support as we can. Herbs and spices could be a good way to start. You know, like you said, you really should work with a practitioner if you are going to be using supplements because you need to know if that's something that is good for you to use. I mean, I can agree with you that most people really need vitamin D because we spend so much time indoors. And magnesium is another great one. But when it comes to things like you said, like ashwagandha or other type of herbs, I really would encourage people to work with a practitioner more one-on-one to see if that's something for you. Because nowadays we see it in all these drinks and smoothies, it's like in everything. And so people just think, oh, that's kind of the trend. I should just take it. And it may not be something that's going to be supportive for you. So I think it's really good to work with an Ayurveda practitioner or at least an integrated practitioner who can see if that's something that's good for your type. I just really want to emphasize this one piece. So because we're talking a lot about fertility, so PCOS and people take ashwagandha and actually you could be doing more damage, you know, because... Uh, ashwagandha helps boost testosterone. And so if you already have high Mm -hmm. testosterone or that's not something you need, taking ashwagandha would be the wrong medicine for you, the wrong supplement, and it can actually cause more damage. So you have to really understand what you're working with or work with someone who really understands what you're using. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example because I know sometimes I will see patients who are taking a laundry list of supplements and they have just, you know, seen online or have friends who've told them that this is great or this helps me. And so that's why I think it's really important to work with someone, as you said, one-on-one to make sure if that's something that's good for you. Because yes, your friend may not have PCOS and using ashwagandha may be something that's good for them, but, and you may not even know if you have PCOS. So definitely it's important to work with a practitioner one-on-one as much as possible. If someone thinks that perhaps they have issues with 
their gut health. Where can they start? As we were talking about, it's best to work one-on-one with a practitioner. We understand that it's not accessible for everybody, but where would you say that they could start that would be safe at home for them to start doing things? If you're already noticing disturbance or you just know that your gut health is not optimal, start keeping a food diary or a food journal and note these things like the time you ate, how you were feeling before you ate and how you felt after you ate, moods, bowel, physical symptoms as well. And do that for about a week and start noticing patterns. Also notice, are you eating on the same time every day or is your eating pattern erratic? Oftentimes it's, you know, we can get really like, oh my God, I could have this or I could have that. But sometimes we need to take care of the simple things first before going deeper into it. So one thing everyone can do is start regulating their circadian rhythm. Start eating at relatively the same time every single day. So always have your breakfast at 8 a.m. or whatever that optimal time is for you. Then always have your lunch at noon and always have your dinner at 6 p.m. and then your snacks at the same time. One, that will give a signal to your body every day that a meal is coming, so we need to start secreting digestive juices so then I can start digesting and getting all of that ready, right? Because our body shouldn't be in digestive mode all of the time. We need the blood to be in our brain so we could be functioning and creative, right. um, not always just in our stomach. So that is really important. Start there. I like to say fast in between meals. So instead mm-hmm. of constantly grazing, make sure you're Breakfast, lunch, and dinner are big enough so that you're not starving an hour later. <laughs> Oftentimes, people are like, we'll just kind of have a snack size of a breakfast and then be hungry like an hour later and then start snacking. Right. So working on that a little bit. And the other important piece is sleeping and waking at relatively the same time every single day. Because that will also signal to your body that, okay, I need to stop digesting. I need to stop all of these things so I can get enough sleep. We start producing our hormones and regulating our system better when there's just that much consistency. And I say that we can't predict life. We can't predict uh, natural disasters and the stress that's oncoming, but we can control when and how we eat and sleep. And so that is a really great way to actually insulate our body from the impacts of stress. Um, just a couple of other things. Try to cook as much as possible at home. It's easy to do takeout. It's easy to heat up frozen food. But when you start cooking more and more, you have more control over the ingredients, how much sugar and processed stuff that goes into it. And oftentimes when you cook at home, simpler is better. And then your digestion will appreciate that as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that cooking at home is kind of the first step and that will make it a little easier for things to just be a little healthier. Unfortunately, a lot of times you'll go to a restaurant and the things that you would not imagine have a sugar in it. Your dinner may have sugar in it. Certain breads have more sugar in it. So I think it's important to try to eat as much at home as possible. And you mentioned the time-restricted eating in a way. I think that is super important because we tend to just kind of snack all day. For a long time, the idea was that we should be eating mini meals all day. And I, I know that idea is kind of falling by the wayside, but trying to eat more, like you said, larger meals and not doing snacks, I think that those are all things that really can be beneficial because our body's not designed to be digesting all the time. 
And we often eat really late and then we sleep. And different organs have different circadian rhythms just as we do. So we have to pay attention to that. Where could someone find an Ayurvedic practitioner? And you could give us your information about how to work with you, but where else can we find a practitioner? Now there are more and more practitioners. When you're looking for a practitioner, I would just make sure that they did go to a really great accredited school and didn't just do some random program online or something. And To become an Ayurvedic doctor, it takes 10 years to become an Ayurvedic doctor in India. So it's very extensive training. There are no medical schools in America to become an Ayurvedic doctor, but there are a lot of schools now to become an Ayurvedic practitioner. So you could go to the National Ayurvedic Medical Association's website and you'll have a list of practitioners there. You can also, if you go on Yelp, you can put on Ayurvedic practitioners. The only thing is that make sure that they just have the right schooling. They went to an accredited school and they actually have the certification to be an Ayurvedic practitioner. Um, But it's becoming more and more popular. I know in California, there are a lot of Ayurvedic practitioners. I'm not so sure about the rest of the United States, but going to that website would be a great first source. And then lots of Ayurvedic practitioners are also virtual. So I am a virtual practitioner, though I can see people from all over and I'm not limited by just my regions. Where can listeners find you if they would like to work with you one-on-one? You can go to my website, mooncyclenutrition.com, which has a lot more information about my offerings and how to book a call with me. I always do a initial 15-minute call just to make sure we're a good fit. And so that would be a good place. And then my Instagram is also full of resources as well. And I'm always like highlighting other Ayurvedic practitioners on my Instagram as well, too. And what's your Instagram? It's at mooncyclenutrition. Okay. And you are also on Clubhouse. Tell us a little bit about Clubhouse. Yeah. So Clubhouse, it's this new audio app, a social app. And I've grown my club to be one of the largest women's health clubs on that platform. And every Friday we have a room called Ask the Experts. And we discuss a wide range of health topics and it's multidisciplinary. So I have OBGYNs to holistic fertility specialists to acupuncturists, like nutritionists, all of that in there. And then we have other great rooms on um, a range of women's health topics, even reproductive and social justice issues. And so do tune in there because it's just such a wonderful resource, but it's the community where we can actually talk about these things. I would definitely check out the Moon Cycle Club on Clubhouse. It's great. So much information. You can listen while you're doing things around the house. You have clubs all different times during the week, so you can learn a lot there. Now, one of the questions I ask all of my guests is, what brings you joy? You know, I think that so often we miss the little things that go on in our lives, the little moments of joy. And so I think it's really important to cultivate joy every day and try to make room for it. So how do you cultivate joy in your own life? Yes, things can be really stressful. And so I always try to keep little reminders around and my background. 
flowers. Flowers bring me so much joy. So I always try to keep fresh flowers around like in my home or in my workspace. What's your favorite flower? <laughs> Out of curiosity. Oh, yeah. Peonies. I just adore peonies. Thank you so much for being here today with me and sharing all of your knowledge with my listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. And be sure to check out Namisha. We're going to put all of her information in the show notes if you want to learn more about working with her one-on-one or any of the places you can find her on social media. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. Today's guest is speaking with me from Australia. Jennifer Robertson is a fertility coach and writer of the book, The Injustice of Infertility. We tried pretty much absolutely everything you can think of. It was this huge process. We went back to our fertility specialist and they said the only way that you're really going to be able to have a baby of your own is by a surrogate here in Australia where I am. We had to find someone who would do this out of the goodness of their own heart. And my sister-in-law put up her hand and said, look, if you can't have a baby, I'll have one for you. Mm -hmm. That moment of them telling us that this was our only option, it was relief, Mm -hmm. but it was also grief at the same time because you don't imagine this is the path that you're going to go down you know I imagine that my husband and I on our honeymoon would get pregnant and have a baby made from love and we'd get to where we wanted to go this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice